Luke chapter number 13. appreciate your participation in the service this morning. I appreciate everybody who ministered and who worked on the service and who read the scriptures and so forth. I trust that your heart was blessed already this morning. I was also sitting in my seat there thinking about all the work that was done on the, the property today, this week, the different ministries that were taking place, the different events that took place. People were busy, people coming and going and doing and carrying on the work of the ministry. I really appreciate all that. appreciate uh, Dirk who uh, fixed the ceiling out there in the foyer. If you saw what a mess that was when we tore out all those walls, appreciate Dirk coming in and fixing the ceiling. Pastor Sean doing some texturing and some painting on that. Appreciate that. Lord willing, the, fo the foyer will be done uh, before we decorate for Christmas. At least that's the goal at this point. But I do appreciate all the work uh, that they did on that. We're in Luke chapter number 13 this morning. This morning's message will be a little different. I'm quite sure that if this were an, a homiletics class, I would be in trouble. A homiletics class is the class where they teach preachers how to make and deliver sermons properly. And I'm pretty sure that this one would get a failing mark. That doesn't bother me at all. Because it is not my responsibility to prepare and preach a sermon. It is my responsibility to deliver a message from God with as little of me in it as is possible. Yes. As far as I, can, as I can discern, this is my only desire. What this message is supposed to mean to anybody here and in the hearts of anybody here is beyond my scope of knowledge. That happens to be your side of this equation. Your side is to sit here and listen to the Spirit of God speaking in your heart and to cast aside anything of mine that you find in the message that's mixed in and deal straight with the Spirit of God. The message is going to go like this. We're going to read a short passage of scripture, and I'll make some individual comments on that as an introduction. Then we'll pray, and then I'm going to tell you a story, and then I'm going to ask three simple questions, and we'll be done. In my personal devotions this week, the passage that we're going to read tugged at my heart. I didn't make any notes concerning it, as I normally do when, I, when something re deals with my heart, when I'm doing my devotions. I didn't make any notes about that. And to be honest with you, uh, as I sat and, and I pictured it and contemplated what I was saying, my heart was stirred. But that was early in the week, and life got busy, and to be honest with you, it passed completely out of my thoughts until I was sitting there preparing for this morning's message. And then it all came flooding back to me, and its purpose in my heart was answered. So try to envision, as we read, try to envision exactly what's being said. Try to envision what's taking place here. Luke chapter number 13. 
There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering and said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those eighteen upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were, in, they were sinners above all men that dwell in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And he spake also this parable, a certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of the vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit of this fig tree, and find none. Cut it down, why encumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, until I dig until I shall dig about it and dung it, and if after, and if it bear fruit, well, and if not, then after that, thou shalt cut it down. I think the uh, details are pretty straightforward here. In verse number uh, one, Pilate, I don't know the historical event that's taking place here, but Pilate, who is the government, has people killed who were participating in some religious rituals. So we have the government murdering people, death basically at the hands of a dictator. Okay, we get that. In verse number four, we have a tall building, a tower, that evidently was not properly constructed. And through some accident, this building collapses and it kills 18 people by accident. These people were not gathered there by any specific person, and they didn't push the tower down on them on purpose. They just happened to be there at the time, and they died by a tragic accident. Now, the Lord uses these two events that evidently were in the headlines news at that time, an intentional murder and an accidental death, and he says... You know, the tendency of people who look at these who died, and they try to decide, did those people deserve it or not? Were they the guilty? They, these people must have been super guilty for that tower to have fallen on. They must have been sinners. Are they guilty or not? What is the reason for their death? You know what the truth of the matter is? Death is ready to knock at everybody's door. Who knows when it will be our turn for death to knock. Whether it will be intentional or accidental, it doesn't really matter one way or the other. Death is ready to knock at everybody's door. But the Lord goes on with a parable an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. He goes on and tells this story that's linked with this, these two events and what he just said. And I think we ought to pay particular attention to it. The Lord says, there's a rich man, and he has this garden. And he comes into his garden with his foreman, and they're looking around, and he goes over to a fig tree. 
And he goes to get this fig tree. It has green leaves on it. It's all flush and flourishing. And he goes over to pick some fruit off of this fig tree. And when he gets there, there's no fruit on the tree. And the owner of the garden says to his foreman, this is the third year that I have gone to this tree and there has been no fruit on it. Cut it down. Let's put something in its place that will bear fruit. The foreman says, may I offer a suggestion? Why don't you let me dig around this tree? Let me add some fertilizer into it. Let's break up the hard soil that's around this tree. Let me add some fertilizer to it and give it a year. And after a year, if next year this thing doesn't produce any fruit, then we'll cut it down. If it produces fruit, great, wonderful. But if not, then let's get rid of it. It's a pretty straightforward story. We understand that. When you couple this with verse number 1 through 5, we start to get a fairly clear meaning. We look at verse 1 through 5, it says, Death is ready to knock on anybody's door. And then we say, and then it gives an, an illustration where there's an unfruitful tree, a fruit that will not bear fruit, and they're ready to cut it down. I think we get into the neighborhood of what the Lord is trying to say. So this morning, uh, let's ask the Holy Spirit to break up that hard ground in our heart, to mix in some nutrients, so that we might start producing fruit in our lives. An unfruitful life is unacceptable, is what the Lord is saying here. And let us ask the Spirit of God to break up that ground and add in what's needed so that we might be fruitful. The, the title of this morning's message is, If Not, comma, Why? Question mark. If not, why? Let's pray. Father, we need you desperately. The infirmities of the flesh in speaking and in hearing are evident. But your spirit can so move that this is not an issue. Your spirit can speak to our spirits and teach us as we need to be taught. We leave this in your capable hands and ask that you would use this time in the way that you see fit. Bless us, Father. For we ask this in the precious name of Christ. Amen. Now let me tell you a story and follow it with three simple questions. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. For God had decided to create a race of people with whom he could fellowship. He needed a place to put them, and so he created the earth. Six days he worked on this creation. And each day, at the end of the day, he would look at his creation and say, that's good. Every night he would end with that, looking at his creation and saying, what I did today was good. On the sixth day... 
he created man. The purpose behind all the other creations was man. God created man on the sixth day. This was the purpose. He took some dust out of the ground and formed man. He then breathed into man the breath of life, and man became a living soul. He linked man's life with his life. Man became a living soul, an eternal creature. This is important. And God looked over everything that he had made, and he said, this is very good. Man began a very happy life with God. He lived in the world that God had created for him, enjoying walking with God in the cool of the day. But trouble loomed on the horizon, for God had created man with a will and the ability to choose. God's purpose for man was to have a relationship of reciprocal love. A relationship of reciprocal love. Love from him, love from man. Reciprocal love. And love that is forced is not love. So man has got to be given a choice. Not long after this happy beginning, man is given his choice. He is, his choice is either to follow God from that point on in everything or to choose a life that is independent from God with the knowledge of good and evil. We're all aware of this choice. Adam chose life independent from God. And in the process, he brought sin into his own life and into sin into the world. It seems like a pretty small thing. But my friend, what we have learned is sin is uncontrollable. It quickly spread itself like a plague, separating man from God and plunged the world into darkness. You know what? Gone were the days of happy communion in the garden. Sin had worked its work of devastation, and now many of man's offspring would despise and defy God himself. This is how sin works. From a logic standpoint, put yourself in God's, point, God's spot. What is the easiest thing to do at this moment? You've given man a choice, and he chose against you, and now is defying you. From a logical standpoint, the choice is easy. You just wipe this one out and start all over again. However, the choice is it's not quite that simple. Because man is an eternal creature, and he cannot be just destroyed. His life is linked with God. So he must be, live forever somewhere, and that would mean being separated from God. And God's intent on this whole process was the act of reciprocal love. And so God had set his affection on man, 
And true love just doesn't destroy when things go bad. And so God has a plan. Love proves itself in adversity, and in the foreknowledge of God, he already knew this was going to happen. And he set in motion a plan that he had already worked out. The perfection and the law of God cannot be violated. Heaven is perfect, God is perfect, and justice must be served. The plan must operate within the framework of perfection and justice. Sin must be paid for. And a human must pay for human sin. This is, in, you can't change this. It cannot be altered. Sin must be paid for, and a human must pay for that sin. In the situation as it stood, each sinner would pay for their own sin, separated from God forever. Man couldn't simply just be destroyed because he was an eternal creature. So he would have to live without God forever, separated from him, because he is an eternal creature. The only hope of saving mankind was substitution. This is man's only hope. He has to have someone who can take his punishment and satisfy the law of God. But this substitute has specific requirements. What does a, what does a substitute look like if someone is going to pay for the sins of the whole world? If someone is going to take the sin debt, what does a substitute have to look like? Well, he has to be human because a human has to pay for sin. He has to be perfect. He can, if he has sin of his own, how can he pay for anybody else's? So he's got to be perfect. And he has to be valuable. What does it cost to pay the sin debt of the whole world? Whoever dies in the, as a substitute must be valuable enough to pay that whole sin debt. So we are looking in this plan for someone who is human, perfect, and valuable. God has a plan, and he puts it into action. Adam and Eve are promised a savior. Adam and Eve are promised this substitute. In fact, Eve thought that her firstborn son was going to be the promised savior. Couldn't be much more mistaken than that. Her firstborn son, Cain, kills her secondborn son, uh, Abel. This shows you how fast sin can get a hold of and, and spread. The firstborn child on the planet murders the secondborn child on the planet. Not a very promising start for the human race. The world settles in waiting for the Savior, this Messiah that's promised. Meanwhile, sin continues to wreck its havoc on the planet. Pretty soon, the world's entire population, think of it, the entire population of the world, their thoughts are always evil continually. Only in Noah and his family, did those were the only ones who were still seeking God. And God, because the world had become so wicked, had to wipe the world out by flood. And Noah and his family are the only ones spared. Over and over through the years, as the world waits, God has to intervene on the behalf of man. 
putting each of his pieces in place, one after the other. Each generation looked for the promised Savior. As one writer put it, long lay the world in sin and error pining. They're waiting for the one who would bring men back to God into eternal fellowship with him. And then, in the fullness of time, when the time was exactly right, the plan is enacted. An angel is sent to a young Jewish girl named Mary. She is told that she is going to have a son. But this son will be something special. The son will be born of a virgin. This fact will cause him to meet all the requirements of the promised Savior. Think this through. As her son, the baby will be human. The man will be human because he is the son of a woman. But the absence of the human father will prevent the fallen nature of man being passed down. So he will be, as it were, if we want to call it that, a blank slate. He will be the last Adam. He will be the second man, one that's not corrupted by sin. If you can think of it, it's like another edition of Adam. So he will be perfect, as it were. He'll be a blank slate without the sin nature. And since this is none other than God the Son, God himself taking on a human flesh, he is valuable. His value is incalculable. So he meets all of the requirements of a substitute. He is human. He is perfect. And he is valuable. The only deal now is he must be able to live on the earth without sinning. And then he can be a qualified substitute. He can be the savior of mankind. The events transpire exactly as God predicted. And the shepherds gather in a cow shed behind a crowded inn to welcome the savior of the world. You know, this may seem like a difficult start of a life. To be born out in a barn, out behind in a crowded place, in all this. If you think, and you think, man, that's kind of a rough start. But this is nothing compared to what's coming. This is the easy part, being born out there in that stable. The next 33 years, what he experiences will be beyond anything that we can even comprehend. Of his growth to manhood, we know very little. But you can imagine in your mind, can you not, what it would be like to try to live the first 30 years of your life without committing any sin? We know that he did so, for at his baptism, the Lord, the voice from heaven, the God the Father says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God the Father would not have said that had the Lord Jesus fallen short of perfection at any time. We would say that those 30 years were difficult. The being born in the manger was nothing compared to that. But at age 30, the real testing began. The real testing that would make those first 30 years seem like nothing. 
because he must be proven to be sinless. He must be tempted at all points like as we are yet without sin. He is tempted by the devil who pulls out all the stops knowing that if he can make the Lord Jesus fall, then the whole thing comes to nothing and the human race will be doomed forever. Christ fasts and prays for 40 days and when he's at the point of death, he's, the devil tempts him with bread. Christ is a man without any possessions at all to speak of and the devil offers him the entire world. Think about that temptation to have nothing and be offered everything. He's offered the fame of the world and all that goes with it. But he does not fall to the traps of the devil. For the next three years, he will be tempted continually and tested. Each day will bring opportunities to fail from all sides. The powerful religious leaders will continually set traps for him. He will be criticized and mocked for almost everything that he says or does. Now think about how difficult it would be to maintain a proper attitude and proper speech when they are continually trying to trap you. And every single thing that you do is twisted and mocked and changed. They will plot his murder on multiple occasions. On top of this, the people around you will be greedy and false. They will take all that he has to give and then ask for more. They will be unthankful and unkind, trying to use him for their own selfish interests. His own disciples will not be much better. They will continually argue over who is the greatest in the kingdom. Anytime they go with him to pray, they'll fall asleep. They will say dumb things and do dumb things, testing his patience and his mercy. One of the twelve is a thief, constantly stealing from the group. And eventually he will sell out the one who has been a perfect friend for three, for three years for 30 pieces of silver. The other disciples in the hour of his greatest temptation forsake him and run away. The lowly birth in the manger was nothing compared to the first 30 years of his life. But the first 30 years of his life were nothing compared with the last three. And in the garden, the, the last three were nothing in compared to his last day. For in the garden of Gethsemane, our sin was laid on Jesus Christ. He had proven himself sinless, and now it was time to be the substitute, to pay the sin debt of the entire world. He's taken by the religious leaders and judged in a mockery of justice. How would you maintain a proper attitude when the court has hired the witnesses against you? And because they cannot get their false testimonies to agree, they actually convict him on, they sentence him to death for telling the truth. Consider how difficult that would be to maintain a proper thought, to be sentenced to death for telling the truth. He's beaten and then he's mocked 
He has his beard plucked from his face, and he is spat upon, and he is blasphemed of all sorts. He's then sent to the government to be tried. Pilate thoroughly examines him and realizes that this is a totally innocent man. But for political expediency, he sentenced him to death himself. He turns him over to his soldiers and they beat him with a cat of nine tails. They dress him up like a king and mock him. They put a crown of thorns on his head and then beat that crown of thorns with a rod. I don't know if you can get your mind to wrap around that. They gamble for his possessions, what little that he had. He is so beaten and weak at this point that you couldn't really tell who he was. And when they place that heavy rough wooden cross on his back, he collapses under the weight. They lead him through the streets. And the crowd that has been crying, Hosanna, is now crying, crucify him. He is taken till Golgotha, the place of a skull, and nailed to that cross. As he hangs there in open shame, his companions are two thieves who are reviling him at the same time. The sky turns black, and God the Father has turned his back on his own son. Our sin now stands between them. And the Lord Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God the Father and God the Son are separated. There is a breach in the Trinity because of our sin. And then we hear these precious words come from Jesus Christ. As he dies, he says, It is finished. What is finished? The plan of God to redeem mankind. The promised substitute has come and paid the debt. The plan is complete. The the debt is paid. Some might wonder about that debt and its efficacy, its ability to, to, to settle the debt. But three days later, we have proof positive. Our sin put Christ in the grave, but three days later he rose from the dead and came out. This is God the Father ruling on our case. Isaiah 53, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. The law of God on our sin is settled in the death of Jesus Christ. This is the story. It is An old, old, old story. It has been told billions of times in the last 2,000 years. It's a very familiar story to everybody here, I'm sure. And now let us ask three simple questions. Question number one. If Jesus Christ is not the Savior of the world, why did he do all of this? Why be born in a cow shed? Why suffer difficulty for 30 years? Why spend the last three years of his life being constantly abused and tempted and tested when at any point he could have just walked away? Why take the cat of nine tails? Why the mocking, the spitting, and the beating? 
All that he had to do was say the word and they would have let him go. Why the death on the cross? Why the darkened sky? Why the incalculable agony? If he's not the savior of the world, then why did all of this take place? Well, the answer is simple. He is the savior of the world. And that is why it did. And why the things happened as they did. Question number two. If he is the savior of the world, then why have you not taken him as your savior? This is a legitimate question. If Jesus Christ is the savior and suffered all this for your sin to save you, then why have you not taken him as your savior? Are you waiting for someone else? My friend, there is no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Are you waiting to be in better shape? Are you trying to fix yourself up to be more presentable? My friend, all of your righteousness is as filthy rags. Jesus Christ calls you to come just as you are. Are you waiting for a better time? Are you still thinking that your sin will eventually pay off and you can enjoy it? My friend, sin never pays off. It never has and it never will. You are just putting your soul at risk for more misery. If Jesus Christ is not the Savior of the world, then why did all this happen? If Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, then why haven't you put your trust in him? And question number three. If you have taken him as your Savior, why don't you love him with all your heart? If you have taken Christ as your Savior, why don't you love him with all of your heart? My dear Christian friends, have you forgotten where you came from? Have you forgotten what it took to set you right? Don't you remember the peril that you found yourself in? Do you not remember the predicament and the surety of your death forever in hell? Do you not remember this? If you've taken him as your savior, why don't you love him with all your heart? Will you invest your love in the pleasures and riches of this life expecting something from them? Will you spend your life doing nothing and letting your love for Christ just go to naught? If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, how can you sit there without loving him with all of your heart? It is a legitimate question. 
it deserves an answer. How can you do this to the one who suffered so greatly for thee? How can we put anything first in our heart before Jesus Christ? Christ came to purchase you back to provide that close personal life with him. It is available because he bought it. Do you have that close personal life with God? If not, why? Let's pray.